Today is the last in a series uh, called Now What? It's a look at some of the values that we have at Grace Life based on our overall mission of making disciples. Caleb uh, began the series with a look at mission, the community of mission. Next week he talked about serving. Last week we talked about worship, and today we end with talking about giving, and I know that's everybody's favorite subject. But let's get into this. In 1820, Thomas Jefferson, who had been retired from politics for a while, he was 77 years old, he had some time on his hands, I guess, so he uh, decided to sit down and edit the Gospels. What, you say? Well, he purchased six Bibles, two in English, two in French, one each, both in Latin and in Greek. In using a razor, Jefferson cut and pasted the Gospels in a format that he thought was a good thing. In, the, in this book, he kept the words of Jesus, most of them, and some of his deeds, but he left out the miracles and any suggestion that Jesus is God. The virgin birth is gone, so is Jesus walking on the water, multiplying loaves and fishes, raising Lazarus from the dead. Jefferson's version ends with Jesus' burial. No resurrection, no Easter Sunday. Jefferson called this version the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Got a couple of pictures I'd like to put up. Let's put up number one there. This is the edited version of the Gospels that Jefferson put together. This book is in the Smithsonian. Uh, Jefferson never published it, although you can go to the Smithsonian and, or you can go to Amazon and order a copy of Jefferson's Bible. I would suggest that you don't do that. Um, and then let's see the other picture. The second one, yeah. I don't know how well you can see it, but that's obviously the Bible. And if you look carefully, you can see where he pasted a portion of the scripture onto a page. Why would he do that? Well, he didn't like the notion that Jesus was God's solution to his sin. He did not believe that Jesus was God. And he didn't want to be confronted with that idea, so rather than not using a Bible at all, Jefferson made his own set of Gospels, removing all the stuff he didn't like. Have you ever come across a passage of Scripture that you didn't like? Maybe it was a, something that challenged your theological uh, understanding. Maybe it was something that was just difficult to understand. Or maybe it was a passage that confronted you with a particular sin. And having come across such a passage, what did you do? Well, Jefferson cut it out. Uh, I did something a little different. My pastor was finishing up preaching out of the book of 1 Corinthians. And at the time, I was teaching an adult Sunday school class during the second hour of our services. And I thought it would be a good idea to begin teaching through 2 Corinthians as a follow-up to what our pastor had done. So I began to read through 2 Corinthians, trying to look at the best way to approach it and trying to get a, uh, an overview of what Paul wrote. And then I got to Second Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Now I knew those chapters were there, and I knew generally the content of those chapters. <clears throat> but as I read those chapters, I got very uncomfortable. I didn't like what it said. Those two chapters speak about giving. And as I, was read, I, as I read, I was confronted with the fact that my giving, or lack of it, did not come close to what 
those chapters taught. If I had taken Jefferson's solution to the problem, I would have cut those chapters out of my Bible. I'm happy to say that I didn't do that. They're, they're right there, they're in there. But what I did was I just closed the Bible and I went and started thinking about something else. Let's pray. Father God, I think sometimes we get nervous when people speak about giving. When we read the Gospels, we must get a lot nervous because Jesus talked a lot about giving and about money. Because we have some fears, Father, that probably aren't well-founded. And I pray today, Lord, that you would uh, help us understand what you want when it comes to giving and that you'd help us help cause us, Father, to have those fears allayed in our lives and that giving would become something of a joy. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, so some pastors don't like preaching about giving. <laughs> I kind of get it as I'm standing here. One of the reasons they don't like preaching about giving is because they don't want to be labeled as that guy. Oh, that guy's just a prosperity preacher. That guy, all he does is talk about money. Oh, that guy, he just wants to get rich from my money, from my giving. You know what? And I don't like that guy preaching about my money. So at the risk of some thinking of me as that guy, I want to do two things today. First thing I want to do is I want to tell you about my experience of giving, if you will, my journey of giving. And then after that, we're just going to take a look at those two chapters in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and draw from them some principles about giving. Now, in most of what I'm about to tell you about this journey of giving of mine, I'm going to use the personal pronoun I a lot. Certainly, while uh, Nancy, I, Nancy and I are gave what we gave together, how I got to think about giving is my experience. It's my journey, and I want you to sh- want you to be sure to understand what I'm sharing about here is me. When I became a Christian, just before I turned 19 years old, I was excited that God had saved me. I was excited that God had given me entrance into his kingdom and entrance into his kingdom for eternity. And I wanted everything uh, from God. I wanted to know everything that God wanted from me. I was a poor college student. I didn't have a lot of money, but what I did have, I tithed on. I gave 10% because that's what I was told. That's what Christians told me I should give. Went to school, and I eventually met uh, the person who would become my first wife, Nancy. She's still my first wife. (laughs) She fell in love with me. I mean, you know, who wouldn't? Don't answer that. Started dating. And uh, with the help of one particular professor, I found, I found out ways to take Nancy on some really cheap dates. And as time went on, I continued to give. But giving became a little bit less important because I was really excited about Nancy and about our relationship. We got married, got excited about my new life and all that goes with it, and I thought it was important that I get back fully engaged with God doing what he wanted, being committed to him, and that included giving. So I went back to giving 10%. At some some point, someone in the church told us about an organization called Compassion. 
Compassion is an organization that serves children all over the world who are in poverty, helps them financially, and brings the gospel to them. We, Nancy and I have been supporting children through Compassion our entire married life and can continue to do so today. We're supporting a not-so-much-a-child-now young man named Diego from Ecuador. Well, you know how it goes. Life happens. You need money to pay for a car. You need money to pay for a home. You have to have groceries. There are expenses and bills to pay. There are unexpected expenditures that have to happen. You have a kid. In addition to costing money, kids cost you your sanity. These and other things began to weigh on me. I wasn't going to drop our support of our compassion child. But I remember thinking one day, you know, I'm giving 10%. So... I could give, out of that 10%, what we give to the compassion child and give the rest to the church. I thought that would work. I thought that was reasonable. I'd still be giving 10%. One day in a study group I was in, uh, we talked about giving, and the subject of the day was, should we give 10% of our money on our net income or on our gross income? <laughs> what? <laughs> what are you talking about? And at the time, I didn't know a lot about what the Bible taught about giving. I knew that it taught tithing, right? Uh, but I didn't know that it talked about gross income and net income. Well, I went home, I did some calculations, and discovered that I was, if I was going to give on my gross income, I'd have to give more, a lot, what seemed to me, a lot more money. I still had bills to pay. And that day I rationalized that God must have meant to give on your net income very biblical understanding there. Life goes on. We got a credit card. I remember getting the credit card in the mail and going to Nancy. I said, Nancy, let's break this in. And we went to a nice restaurant, probably one that we wouldn't normally have gone to. And you know, you probably guess what happens next. Card gets maxed out. I mean, I needed a computer, right? Well, we've got another card. You know what happens. But I was doing okay. I mean, I was making a little bit more than the minimum payments on the credit cards. And then there was a personal loan, and then there was a refinance of the mortgage, and, you know, things happen. You have to fix a car, or get a car, or make repairs to your home, or whatever. The list goes on. That list of reasons, in part, led to some, I will admit, very stupid financial decisions. As to giving, well, I wasn't really giving, not much anyway, certainly not 10%. We were in debt, that plus our regular expenses, plus now giving the added uh, dimension of having to give my sister some money who was having financial troubles and health troubles of her own, didn't leave much. I mean, I tried to give. Every two weeks, I paid all my obligations, paid the bills, took care of my sister, paid on the credit cards. Had a lot of expenses, and by the time all it was paid, there just wasn't much left over to give. And it's not like I wasn't aware of the problem, both financially and spiritually. My pastor came up to me one day and asked me if I wanted to be an elder. And while I didn't tell him the reason, I told him no. And the reason was because I knew that I was not measuring up in my giving, and for what God wanted from me, or at least what I thought God wanted from me. And over time, things got worse. It got to the point where 
making mortgage payments became very difficult. And at that point, I knew I had to get my financial act together, so I made some changes, stopped charging so much on the credit card, and I began praying that God would help us resolve some of our financial concerns. And to my surprise, he did. Not everything, but some things. It helped, but I still wasn't giving 10%. Financially, I wasn't out of the woods. I could give a little more after the bills were paid, which I thought was good, but still not 10%. And you know, I was feeling guilty. And then that thing happened. And I loathed it. I loathed it every time this thing happened was ever done in my church. I loathed it. Did I tell you I loathed it? It always made me feel guilty. It always made me feel like I was a terrible Christian. And what what it was that I loathed was a capital campaign. You know what those are? It's where a church wants to raise money for maybe a building project or some other uh, special project that wouldn't be covered by church giving. You know, and it gets, they go, you know, rah, rah, we're going to have these goals, we're going to give this, you know, and how it goes. And this capital campaign was intended to do some remodeling of our church. It was intended to also buy a vehicle for a missionary that was badly needed and to support the planning of a church. All good stuff. All stuff I supported. But I loathed it. I was going to give to the capital campaign. I mean, I had to. I mean, what would people think if I didn't give? They said it would be anonymous, but you know. What would people think, found out, what would they think if I, they found out what I gave? What would God think? So I prayed about it. We were told to pray about it. We were told to ask God what he wanted us to give. The amount that didn't matter, they said, as long as you prayed about it and as long as you gave in faith. So I prayed, and not for a moment, thinking that God would lead me to a real decision about it. But I eventually decided to give a certain amount. And now, me, playing the role of Gideon, said to God that I would double what I gave if God would do a certain financial thing. Well, figuratively speaking, the next morning, the wool fleece was wet and everything else was dry. That thing happened. That financial thing happened. And as I look back now, I realize that even before that, my thinking about giving had begun to change, and now my giving began to change. I've called this my journey of giving. It's more proper to say that my journey began really just before that capital campaign and that special, that particular financial thing that happened that God accomplished. And I will tell you now that I no longer loathe capital campaigns. I read Second Corinthians 8 and 9 again, listening this time, and began to learn what God wants to come when it comes to giving. And I was surprised by what I came to understand. And what I came to understand didn't come close to what I had been taught. One of the things I learned is that God is not looking for a percentage cut, as if he was some extortionist coming by weekly to take your money so you would have protection. And all that leads me to the first of two primary applications I want to give you today. The first application is, 
if you are tithing, or in that, if you give to meet some artificial goal, some artificial spiritual minimum to give, stop. I would ask you to stop. We'll come back to that. And now, with a great deal of nervousness, I want to show you some numbers. These numbers are not your numbers. They are my numbers. These numbers represent what God has taken me to. This is not where God has taken you. And please don't adopt these numbers as if they were your own. And I share these numbers by way of illustration to show you what God has done in my journey of giving. This is where God has led me. So that number in the middle, 16.1%, is the uh, amount of our income that we have budgeted to give. That's our total budgeted giving for this year. 11.3%, that 11.3% up in the corner there, goes to Grace Life. The 3%, it's hard for me to see the slide here. The 3% goes to Dynamic Church Planning International. That's where we support the missionary Chris McKinney, which uh, Grace Life also supports. We've been supporting Chris for quite a few years now. The 0.6% goes to Compassion. That's where we support our our Compassion. Not so young child anymore, 18 years old, Diego. 1.3% goes to Isaiah 6 Ministries. That's the ministries that Derek works under, and we do that to support his efforts at uh, growing the planning of the church there in Tennessee. We've committed to doing that for two years. And then there's a 0.0. I'm going, what's that? That's what we budgeted to do other giving. Now, I, I don't know what other giving is going to happen during the year, so I just budgeted there. But I do want to tell you that 0.2% represents money we've given to other giving. And then those numbers on the right side there, uh, those simply represent the percentages of our income that we've given each month this year, January through September. And finally, there's a 16.6% there. As it stands now, it looks like that's what we're going to end up giving this year, 16.6%. Okay, please get rid of that. I don't see it anymore. So how do we get there? I want to talk about generosity. Uh, I just told you to stop tithing. If you view tithing as some spiritual obligation or some minimum of giving that keeps you in good stead with God, that isn't godly giving. So again, please stop it. But isn't tithing in the Bible, you say? Well, yes it is. Nehemiah 10, 34-39. We spent some time in Nehemiah last week when we were talking about worship, but this comes out of that same passage, and I thought it was, it was uh, useful for us here. The people, the Jews here, have commit, are committing themselves to follow God now. The, the law had been read, and they had confessed sin, and they had received God's uh, forgiveness, they received God's grace, and now they're committing themselves to God, and part of their commitment has to do with their giving. <clears throat> we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree, year by year, to the house of the Lord. Also the firstborn of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks. And to bring the first of our dough and and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priest, to the chambers of the house of of our God. And to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. 
For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. You know, if you read that, and you read other passages that talk about what the law required uh, people, the Jews to give, places in, like Deuteronomy and uh, Leviticus, you may read that and go, it sounds like it's more than 10%. And you would be right. Some Bible nerd who had nothing else to do one day decided to sit down and calculate what, uh, what uh, was required to be given by the Jews according to the law. And he came up with 27%. The question comes up then, I mean, that's in the Bible. <laughs> Are you ready to give 27% of your income? Not saying you need to. Tithing as a law-like standard of holiness is not what God wants for believers. Not 10%, not 20%, 7%, not any percent. I just showed you the percentages that we are giving, Nancy and I are giving. But we didn't get there because we thought of that this is some spiritual standard that God wants us to give to. God led us to that. Some Bible students assert that because tithing predates the giving of the law, which it does, we should therefore tithe. But so does circumcision. I think I need to say anything more about that. Most of the book of Deuteronomy records Moses preparing the Israelites to enter the promised land. In Deuteronomy 12, Moses speaks of a yearly feast where the Israelites were to go to the tabernacle to bring their tithes. Deuteronomy 14 tells the Israelites what they're to do with their tithes and why. Deuteronomy 14, 22 and 23. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Did you hear what it said? The Israelites, to bring their tithe to this feast, to Jerusalem, could eat from their tithe. They could eat from what they brought. At least part of it. They were allowed to keep, they were allowed to eat part of what God had required them to give. The more important point, though, here is why. They, that they may learn to fear or revere the Lord. Fearing the Lord in this context means to obey, to obey the law. This is so the Israelites could learn trust. That they could understand trusting God. That they could learn to understand, to trust the God who allows them to actually eat a portion of the tithe that God had required them to bring as a gift. You can read the Old Testament, places like Leviticus and Deuteronomy primarily, read all about what God required as far as tithing and giving was concerned. If you go to the New Testament, the New Testament talks about tithing only twice. Once in Hebrews, where the author records that Abraham gave 10% of the spoils of war to the priest king Melchizedek. But it says nothing about a requirement to give. And in fact, if you read the passage carefully, it kind of looks like Abraham just chose to give that 10% without any kind of prompting. The other time was an encounter of Jesus with the Pharisees. Jesus commended the Pharisees for giving a tithe of their mint and their cumin and so on. 
But then Jesus commended them in the same sentence for neglecting what he said was the weightier matters of the law. Love and justice, mercy and faithfulness. Jesus says a lot about money. We don't have time to look at all of it today. But Jesus said that we need to choose God rather than money. Jesus said we need to give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to give to God what is God. Jesus says, don't worry about what you will eat or about what you will wear, but rather pursue his kingdom and righteousness and all those things will be added to you. Jesus never taught tithing, and tithing is not taught in the New Testament. But that begs the question, well, what does God require when it comes to giving? Let's take a look at 2 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul had previously written to, the, written to the Corinthians, as well as other churches, telling them of a great need of relief for the Jews in Judea, the believers in Judea. Paul instructed the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians to prepare the gifts so that when he came to them again, they would be ready to give. When we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, which we'll just take a snapshot of here, Paul reminded the Corinthians of this need and of their promise to give. Paul also told the Corinthians about the Macedonian churches and about their giving, who, as Paul says, gave according to their means and beyond their means. And more than that, Paul said that the Macedonians were anxious to be a part of this giving. Paul wrote that he was sending Titus to the Corinthians so they could complete what they promised to give when Paul got there. And what Paul calls a promise to give, he calls an act of grace. In chapter 9, Paul tells the Corinthians that he is sending people to take the collection that he hopes that people are ready and willing to give what they promised. 2 Corinthians 9, 1-5. through 5. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, for which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Caesha has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, he, uh, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead and arrange in advance a gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The word exaction there comes from the Greek meaning greed, and the context of the verse is that they would be giving with an expectation to receive something. Evidently, there was some reluctance on the part of the Corinthians to give what they had promised and then Paul talks about the nature of giving. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 15. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give it as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written... He has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission 
that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and of the generosity of your contributions for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. I think we can discern the nature of giving from this passage by looking at three principles. First one I'm calling overflow. This comes from verses 8 through 10. The nature of giving is rooted in the character of God. God is able to make all grace abound. That word there, abound, means overflow. We know about grace, right? Grace overflows to you, believer. In total forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ and into your, as your adoption of, into God's family, neither of which you or I deserve. Paul extends this principle of overflowing grace so that you will, one, have enough at all times, and two, not only enough for you, but enough for you to overflow in each good work of giving. Nancy and I have seen a lot of waterfalls. We've been privileged to see many waterfalls in Hawaii. Beautiful. We've seen, of course, the falls at Niagara. But I'm most intrigued by the falls at Letchworth Park. You're aware of that. There's an upper, a middle, and a lower falls. And I think that pictures what's being said here. The picture illustrates that overflow of God's grace in provision to you, that leads to God's overflow of grace in your giving, that leads to the overflow of provision to the receivers of your giving. Paul supports his point by quoting Psalm 12, which is a wisdom psalm, and it describes the benefits of living a godly life. The psalm talks of the one who gives. Such a person distributes freely, giving to the poor, which counts as righteousness. That righteousness ensures, endures eternally. Do you see grace here? Do you see the gospel of God's grace here? God makes this uh, matter of supplying and giving a matter of his grace towards you. As you give, it is a result of God's grace in supplying you. It is the grace of God that overflows through you to fill the needs with your giving. And by that, it is God's grace supplying the one who receives. In verse 10, Paul sums it up. He says, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. In the same way God supplies your faith, and in the same way God prepares the, the serving that he wants you to do, before, that he's prepared beforehand for you to walk in. You get that out of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. God supplies the provision for you and for you to give. Paul uses the, the agriculture motif when he says giving is like sowing seed. And that brings us to the second principle, generosity. Verses 6 and 7, sowing and reaping is a well-known biblical principle. The principle goes back all the way to the Old Testament. And Paul expresses the sowing and reaping principle in the context of giving here. I can tell you from my experience that this principle is unfailingly true. Though, as we will see shortly, what God gives bountifully is not always, not even usually, to make you wealthy or well-off. Giving is to be generous, but your generosity, hear this now, your generosity in giving is to be governed by your decision. What you give is up to you. There's no recommended command or commanded percentage or amount. The percentages I showed you earlier I got to by praying about and by considering what God would want me to give. And by considering what God would want us, I say me now, Nancy and I, what God would give us in generosity. 
or what we would give in generosity. When we get paid, the first thing we do is give. Giving is to be without reluctance, which means sadness or grief or regret. If what you give, give comes with sadness and regret, don't give. Because that's not godly giving. In addition, our giving is to be without compulsion. The word there means pressure or could even be mean torture. So, if you're under pressure to give, or if Caleb comes to your house with, house with a bunch of wet noodles and starts beating you up, <laughs> don't give. Because that's not godly giving. Rather than giving under pressure or regret, Paul says to give cheerfully. Cheerfully goes with generosity. The Greek word for cheerful, by the way, is hilaros, where we get our English word hilarious. Godly giving is fun. You may be aware a few weeks ago, or maybe a couple months now, uh, Derek uh, made folks aware of a need for a car that they, they had to get. They had to get a used car. I think he was saying something like five or six thousand dollars, which I can't imagine you can get a good used car for that. But anyway, he put out the appeal. At the time, Nancy and I just felt like we couldn't help with that. But we came into some money a couple weeks ago, not a lot, but some. And uh, we decided to go ahead and give a little bit of that to Garrick. And when I was I would say I could say writing a check, but I hardly write checks anymore. So when I was online giving uh, to Isaiah Six Ministries, and I punched the button to give, uh, I was smiling. It was fun. And then the third principle is grace. In verses eleven through fourteen, Paul talks about the outcome of giving. He starts with the purpose of God supplying, which we talked about before. The purpose of God supplying you is not for your personal gain, although God supplies what you need, and God will supply and be blessed, will bless you many times. But what God supplies isn't for your personal gain, it's for your enrichment, as Paul says, in every way, so your needs will be met, and so that in every way you can be generous. God supplies you so that you will have what you need, and so that you will be his conduit to supply the needs of others. A note here. One reason I showed you those percentages is because I want you to be clear that while God supplies you, uh, be a supply to you and to others, God does supply your needs. If Nancy and I are giving 16.1% of our money to Grace Life and other places, God's still supplying 83.9% of our income for us to meet our needs. Paul goes on to say that this giving results in giving to God. Paul says that those who receive the Corinthians' gift will overflow. There's that word again. In many thanksgivings to God. The receivers will also glorify God. As they approve or validate the giving, realizing that your giving results from your confession of the gospel and from your generosity. It's the gospel that motivates our giving. God has saved us. God has put us into his family. God has given us an eternal home. Why wouldn't I give? God's done so much for me. There will be thanksgiving to God as you give. And there will be glory given to God because of what you give. And finally, your giving will result in prayers for you by those who receive your giving. Probably the most direct way Nancy and I have seen this in action is the gratefulness and blessing to us that our compassion, young man, that we support gives us when we receive letters from him. 
he says he prays for us. The outcome of your giving is thanks to God, glory to God, and prayers for you. And as Paul says, for the surpassing grace of God upon you that results in your giving. A couple things to think about. As you think about what you give, please do not give out of obligation or duty. God wants you to give as he has given to you freely, out of love for him, out of love for others. And there's no amount of percentage you can give that will make God love you more than he loves you right now. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his love toward us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God cannot love you any more than he loves you right now. No matter what you do, no matter what you don't do, and I'll say it, no matter what you give or what you don't give, God will never love you more than he already does. So giving here is not a matter of obligation. The love has, that love, God's love has saved you and brought you into his family and will bring you to eternity with him. That's the motivation for giving. As you give, thank you, God. Consider that what you give is your decision. As long as it's done without compulsion and without reluctance, your decision to give is to be made out of gratitude and love and generosity out of what you have. As with many decisions, submit it to God in prayer. Simply ask him, what do you want you to give? Now, we all have times where there are varying demands on our lives, on our time, and on our money. Depending on a person's situation, generous giving for some may be 1% or half a percent or less. For others, giving 30% may not be generous at all. Giving generously or give generously according to what you have. Paul ends this passage with a small statement. He says, thanks to be God for his inexpressible gift. Well, what gift is Paul talking about? Well, it can't be money. The inexpressible gift Paul talks of refers back to chapter 8, 2 Corinthians 8 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. My first application to you from this passage today was to stop tithing. That is to stop giving if it's 10% or 3% or 25% or any other percentage or any other amount because it's out of a sense of obligation to meet some artificial number that you think God requires. Just allow God to lead you to what to give. And my second application of this passage is to give generously according to what you have and by your decision out of gratitude for what God has given you who has made you rich by his poverty. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for saving us. Thank you, Jesus, for giving everything up to go on that cross to die for us, and more than that, by coming to life again, so that we could come to you, ask forgiveness for our sins, get saved, get brought into your family, and be promised the eternal home with you. Thank you for that. 
And Lord, we realize that you provide for us to meet our needs. And you provide for us not just to meet our needs, Lord, but to to give and to give generously. So, Father, we would ask you today, I would ask you today, Lord, show me, tell me, lead me to what to give. And, Lord, help me to give generously, whatever generously is for me. And help me, Lord, to give with cheerfulness joy because it's the same joy that results from what you gave to us thank you Lord for that thank you for the chance and the opportunity to give in Jesus name Amen